Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Sustainable E-Commerce Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand for a healthier planet. As always, I'm your host, Giles Smith, and this week's show is the fourth one in our mini-series on rethinking waste. So far, we've touched on ocean plastic and how Plastic Bank is rethinking that as a resource in generating significant social and economic opportunity. And we've looked at mechanical recycling of textiles with apparel and how they're actively stitching together supply chains for recycled fibre and then chemical recycling with block techs where blends are being split out and turned into new PET chips and organic paste to be used in soil regeneration projects. So today we move on to footwear. 110 million pairs of shoes are imported into Australia every year. And basically, without rethinking used footwear as a resource, they all end up in landfill. My guest today has been spearheading the recycling of shoes since 2010, and I think you'll agree has an extraordinary depth of experience and pedigree in the business for good movement. John Elliott is the founder of Save Our Souls. They're the organization behind every shoe collection box you maybe have seen or even used at stores like Foot Locker and Rebel Sport and just about everyone else. We learn about the Save Our Souls process in today's show, but with John's deep industry experience, I found the whole conversation fascinating, even if it does get a little philosophical at times. So with that, let's start the show. John Elliott, welcome to the show. G'day, Giles. Uh, thanks for having me, mate. It's lovely to be here. It's a joy to have you here as well, John. Um, so many of the brands I realise as I look back uh, that we've interviewed and that I talk to on, on a sort of regular basis are interacting with you in some way. Uh, and obviously, specifically with regards to Save Our Souls and with the context of talking about rethinking waste and how brands can get involved with that, clearly you were someone that I needed to chat with on the show. And so thank you so much for for joining me today. We're going to get into all that good stuff deep uh, in a moment. But before we do, John, can you maybe give some of our listeners a bit of context? If, if they don't know who you are, can you talk us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, uh, thanks, Charles. It's sort of, I, I was lucky enough to, to join the sporting industry in the 80s. And, uh, and started with Puma, uh, which I loved, and uh, I was there for seven years. Became a frustrated retailer because from uh, being a wholesaler, uh, it looked very easy from the other side of the fence. So I left them and I, I started uh, with a company called Sports Co that were going very well at the time, and I went over to Western Australia and started there. I opened up 10 stores. Uh, found out that retail was probably a little bit more challenging than what I'd anticipated, um, but learnt a lot and, uh, and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, when I left Sports Co, I came back to Melbourne and uh, introduced the, the first one of the first brands uh, that I had called And One, which was a basketball company. It was out of Philadelphia, um, and I was lucky enough to sort of run that company and introduce that brand into Australia. So I did that for four years and had a lot of fun, and and uh, you know I, I, we successfully launched, and um, it was great. The, the owners uh, in Philadelphia were terrific people. They went on actually to be two of them, the co-founders of B-Lab, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit longer. But that's how I connected initially with them. And we used to have great philosophical discussions about 
the role of business and of making the world a better place and and uh, over a, a glass of red wine and and uh, they were good chats. So, and and they're lovely people and uh, and to this day are my friends. And so I left um, I left M1 and uh, I uh, started with Nike. Nike gave me their outdoor brand, Nike ACG, um, and I had a five year deal with that, which was very unusual. I was the only distributor uh, in the world uh, for Nike ACG. Uh, and I guess it was at that it was during that stage a couple of pivotal things happened. I I, taught, I read Tim Flannery's book about climate change, um, and it was one of those uh, flicking switches moments. Um, and I just thought, that whole, you know, if this is true, uh, we got a bit to do to make the world better. When was this, John? What year? What year are we talking? Two thousand and five, two thousand six, okay. I think. And uh, and really, I guess went on a. Um, for the next couple of years, I was working with Nike. I started chairing Nike's environmental group for the region. Uh, I went to Nike's first global climate change summit in 2008 in Portland, Oregon. Um, and to really, I guess, start looking at, okay, you know, we weren't discussing whether climate change was real or not, but just what obligation business had to play its role to make the world a better place. Um, and as, as you can appreciate, that was fairly new back then, um, but the challenge, I guess, of incorporating a, a value system into a brand is still challenging today. But it was an, an exciting conversation about, and I, I, I remember we were talking about, you know, Nike make leather shoes. And we were sort of saying, well, when do we become responsible for the leather? And ultimately, we decided that from a philosophical viewpoint, it was when the calf was born. And you go, okay, well, geez, we've got a fair bit of work to do to work out the impact of that calf until it turns into a, 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 a pair of shoes. So, um, so really interesting, and and uh, I, I really enjoyed the learning. Um, I guess in that space, I did, um, according to my father, bang on a little bit about climate change for a little while, um, and I <laughs> and um, and it was a conversation with him. And I, uh, my my dad's an intelligent, lovely man, and I, I he's he's wise as well, and uh, and. I, I reflected on am I banging on about climate change too much? And I realised probably I wasn't a vehicle for change. I was just a, a vehicle for um, climate change and sort of talking about tipping points and uh, extinction of species and, and if we get to 2% or 1.5%, what's going to happen to the world? And I was sort of a bit of a, um, I just, being a pathetically positive person, I realised that I was just banging on about negative stuff. Mm. Um and while I still, I, I just, so I, I made the decision not to talk about climate change anymore and just, I guess, to be um, a, a catalyst for change and, and to, to really explore how businesses can become better. And I find that a, a far more positive and motivating space than talking about how much man's influence is there, there is in climate change. Because mm. unfortunately, we're still having the same conversation today. And I think the conversation about climate change, while it's relevant and necessary, can often be a handbrake to action. Um, yeah. One thing I do know that if we don't, if we if we don't action things or we don't do things differently, nothing bloody changes. Uh, and and that's where I started recycling shoes. Nike had this thing in America called Nike Reuse a Shoe, and I actually started that and funded that um, while I had Nike ACG. I left Nike in two thousand and ten. And so I started, it seemed ridiculous to be continuing to fund a Nike initiative. Um, 
they've got a lot more money than I'll ever have. And so I changed the name to Save Our Souls, which was a, a generic name. It certainly had nothing to do with Nike. I continued to recycle Nike shoes. I then joined a company called Tom's, which was a, a, an absolute privilege to be involved with um, and uh, worked with them until 2018. Um, and uh, which was a joy um, and uh, and as I say, a privilege. Um, and um, and that really, I guess, showed me a living example of what incorporating a, a value system looks like and the one-for-one one model and all that sort of stuff. So um, when I, and they got bought out by Bain Capital, they got uh, you know, people in to assess their business and uh, one global consultant said, how come you got a managing director down in Australia? It sort of feels why don't we just get distributors, hey, and sort of do that? And I'd sort of been there and done that. So I gave Tom's a hug and, and moved on. I found them the distributors before I left. And I left, uh, I was sad for 30 seconds and just uh, left uh, feeling privileged to be involved. Uh, I know when I first got involved with uh, Tom's, uh, Blake had, uh, and his team had given away about 1 million pairs of shoes. And by the time I left, we'd given away 94 million pairs of shoes. So it was sort of incredible i felt like i had uh, yeah, it was incredible it was it was terrific and um and then like in 2018 i sort of um i, I thought well before i get a real job again i better bloody fix up this footwear recycling because i sort of it's been a passion of mine since 2008 so for 10 years i've been doing it but very poorly because i've been running companies i guess you know and, and just didn't have the time so um i then went to asga the australian sporting goods association which i used to sit on the board uh, you know, twenty odd years ago, um, and said to them, "Look, let's let's look at this through a collaborative lens. I live by the words collaboration and inclusiveness amplify outcomes. You know, chair. Um, and you sort of go, and I really believe that. I sort of think that if if we if we if our desire to be more responsible to make the world a better place, it's far easier to do it when we work together." Mm than to be egotistical enough that a person or a brand can fix the world's problems mm. um, because they can't, um, albeit that we need everyone to to have the mentality that they can and do make a difference. Yeah. So we we, we went to ASGA and pretty much got you know, Nike, Adidas, Converse, P- I won't name them all because I'll forget someone, but all of the major players in wholesale and retail, you know, Rebel, JD Sports, all got together and said, come on, let's all recycle shoes together. So... We do that, and as of today, I think we've got about, I don't know, 900 bins around Australia, whereas if you've got your old sports shoes um, and you don't like them anymore or or you can't, you know, I'd much rather people donate them to someone else so that they can use them. Um, reuse is far better than re- recycling, but if you're going to pop them in the bin, you can pop them in your local sports store. They come to me, I crumb them up, and I make retail flooring and anti-fatigue mats, which your Rebels and your JD Sports and your Nikes and, and uh, Converse's all have in their stores. So you can actually, as you put in your old shoes, you might be standing on a floor made out of those old shoes. Yeah, right. So as you walk into a you walk into one of those big stores, you're probably standing on some of the actual flooring that you guys have made as a result of uh, recycling and keeping that stuff in circulation. Amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's, and I think it's, it's what when I created Save Our Souls, I wanted it to be, um, through a understanding that we've all we've got global issues, um, but when you look at it through a local lens, um, there might be opportunities to do things better um, because it's very hard to fix anything globally because circumstances change. In Australia, we don't manufacture footwear, um, so you sort of go, well, 
that's that's not correct. Some people manufacture footwear. The majority of the footwear that not the sort of scale that you get overseas for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, most of it's important. And just to put, it's probably worthwhile just framing the problem of footwear in, in the world and then taking it down to a local level. So globally, we make about twenty three billion pairs of shoes a year. And that's not sport, that's that's the whole of the world. In Australia, we import about 110 million pairs of shoes um, into Australia every year. And you think about it, every pair of shoes you've ever had, once you've got rid of them, you, you just pop them in the bin. Um, so we have to look at, I, I, I guess historically, we've looked at, oh, well, it's just, it's past, it's used by date, it's, it's basically waste. Mm. Um, and you sort of, I, I think we just need to sort of reframe that to some extent and sort of go, if... Um, if we look at waste as a resource, as soon as I say the word resource to you, you think actually, okay, well, it's a resource. How do I use it? Yeah. As soon as I say waste to you, how do I get rid of it? Yeah, it's a different a different conversation. We'll get into that in a minute, yeah, John, sure. because we I want to I want to go and explore that, and it, really that's the purpose of the show. So I don't want to do it disjustice by sort of jumping in. But before we get there, I have to ask, I, and I hadn't planned to ask this, but since you brought it up, you you know you were sort of you sort of explained that you were essentially leading Nike's sustainability drive right at the start of of when they just first started looking at that. I mean, you know, we talk about organizational challenges. I mean, that would have been an absolutely incredible challenge to be taking on. What what were some of the what were some of the key takeouts that you can share with just trying to change an organisation at that scale to think more sustainably? What sort of what sort of challenges do you think that they faced that you that perhaps don't exist now, but that other organisations would be going through now that can relate to that? Look, I think, and I certainly don't want to overstate the importance I had in it. Um, a, a lady called Hannah Jones. Uh, was was really driving this at, at uh, Nike headquarters in uh, in Portland, and I was just lucky enough to be involved at a at a regional level. Um, but we did do you know we did some terrific things in Australia. We were the the, the first region to sort of um, put a, a financial impost uh, and a, a plastic bag minima, minimization strategy, I guess, which we implemented in two thousand eight. So that was sort of that was pretty cool. Um, so what are the cha- what were the challenges? I think um, Nike, uh, in my opinion, are very good in this space, but they haven't really started talking to the consumer about it up until probably a couple of years ago. Um, and and, I, and and it's really interesting. I think Nike, out of all the brands that I've worked for, have probably been one of the best to communicate to the consumer to address their need or to create a need. Uh, but in the in the sustainability space, it's a different. It's, it's a different communication. You can't put up a billboard saying we care about the, the planet um, uh, and we're with you. You can, but I think most people look at that through um, a lens of greenwashing. And so um, it, it has to be based on authenticity. It has to be based on um, there's no black and white. There's a truckload of grey in this space. Um, and it's really, I think the best thing you can do is it says, look, we're trying to be as responsible as we can. And we will we'll be better tomorrow than we are today, accepting that tomorrow everything we do has an impact. Hey? So it's sort of it's so the challenges of of truly using your business as a force for good is challenging um, and 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 constantly changes. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question well enough, but I think it was it was a privilege to be involved at an early stage where probably the thing I'm so excited about now is the consumer is driving this. Uh, yeah. And probably back in you know the 2005 2006, it was sort of early adopters or greenies or whatever it was, but mainstream hadn't sort of clicked in. 
Um, and that's the, the real exciting thing now is that every brand has an obligation to give the consumer what they're asking for. And most of yeah. our consumers are saying, we want you to be better. Yeah, absolutely. We know that we know that eighty percent of consumers now want to live more sustainably. They want to choose more sustainable products, right? We know that for sure. So, what, I mean, obviously, you've seen that through the whole cycle. There, you know, I think you said something very powerful there, which is, you know, back then it was really just the well, I would describe them as being the eco warriors of the time who who were cognizant of what was happening, and the mainstream consumer um, either didn't care or didn't know. That's obviously very different now. What what do you think has been the impetus for that? significant shift in in market understanding of if we can perhaps call it that I, I think probably because the majority of the population around the world um, probably does believe that climate change uh, has been impacted by man and and we can make a difference to um, the world's climate by making changes um, it's not to say that we can control it because climate change is a natural phenomenon but there's no doubt in my mind and I think most people in the world that say, well, since the Industrial Revolution, um, we've, had a, we've had a fair impact. So I think that yeah. the difference is that that's sort of mainstream thinking now, not, not green stuff. Um, and so therefore, uh, particularly the younger generation, uh, they're not debating whether climate change is real or not. They're looking for vehicles to make the world a better place. And, and part of that is through their purchases. And so they're becoming very cognizant of what they're buying um, and who they're buying it from. Um, not only of how it's manufactured, but what you do with it when you don't want it anymore. It's an exciting and rapidly evolving space, mm -hmm. isn't it? I mean, you know, the, the conversations around carbon neutrality have been going on, I don't know, what, 20 years, maybe more. Sure. I mean, you know, probably even 50, I don't know, but um, a long time anyway, certainly as long as, I, as, a, as long as I've been an adult and consuming products. And yet we're still talking about how to reduce it. Sure. But now the conversation's moved on and we're still trying to figure that out, but the conversation's moved on. And, and the impetus for this conversation is definitely around waste and re rethinking what rate waste really means in the first place. But yes. one of the things that I really liked and and really connected with me when we first uh, chatted a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, was your belief, and which I 100% share is why I do what I do, in that brands and businesses are the ones that can lead us into a new age of sustainability because we've got the innovation potential. We've got the will to do it. We've got the resource to do it. We've got the capability to do it. And particularly when it comes to DTC, we've got the communication ability, the education ability, the influencing ability with consumers yep. who ultimately, as you say, are going to drive this back, at, you know, right back. They're going to drive the the change in, in government policy. They're going to drive the, the, the necessity for big business to spend big money to change their enormously complex supply chains yep. and all the rest of it to make that happen. And so that's what excites me. And I loved it when you said that. And that kind of brings me around to this concept of business for good and the, the B Corp, B Lab journey that you've kind of been involved with. You've had a little finger in the pie here and there. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. And for those who don't know, what is the difference between B Corp and B Lab? So, so B Lab is the body that certifies the B Corps. Um, so the, the B Corps are the, the companies that uh, do the certification that's, um, that's monitored and assessed and, uh, and improved by B Lab. Um, and, uh, and so a B Corp is the company that uh, has a rating. So it's basically an umbrella for your entire business. You sit down, you do this assessment, and, um, and if you get over 80 points, you can call yourself a B Corp. Um, and it's it's really I guess the um, the importance of being a force for good in the world. Um, once you accept that, you sort of go if Giles with your mindset 
And with my mindset, if we sort of sat down and said, okay, I'm going to run a, a business that is a force for good and makes the world a better place, and I didn't have a roadmap, um, I would probably do things that you wouldn't do and you would do things that I probably wouldn't do. And, and we, for the best of intentions, we'd try and make our business as good as we could. But without that roadmap uh, and without a certification, um, are we doing as good a job as we can, I guess? And I think that's what, what I like about the, uh, the B Corp community is that we're all challenging each other to become better. It's sort of every B Corp that I know when they recertify, which is challenging. It's not something you do in half an hour. It takes a long time. But they're all committed to getting better scores. So the B Corp community, um, when that first started, Jay and Bart were two of the co-founders of, of M1. And when they sold their business, I think they were, they were, they were happy that they sold it and they got good money for it. But all the goodness that they'd incorporated, the value system they'd incorporated, uh, the new owner didn't necessarily have to take on at all. Um, so they, and, and basically they looked at the, the way we run business, which is accountable basically you know, to the shareholder um, and is accountable to make a, a profit. You sort of go, what about the stakeholders? What about the impact? Um, and, and so um, when the B Corp community started in America, uh, I was cognizant of it because of my friends. And I just said to them, hey, look, if I can do anything to help in Australia, I will. Um, and uh, small giants, uh, we were instrumental in putting that together and I sat on the board. Uh, we all said that we'd sit on the board for the maximum amount of two years. I think I hung around for five and said, look, I've really got to go just to give someone else a chance. But uh, I love it and I'm, I'm very uh, still engaged with Andrew and his team at, at B-Lab in Australia. They do a tremendous job and, and there's more and more people um, joining uh, B Corps every day. But even that's challenging. You know, there's, there's some... Mm original B Corps that are sort of saying, hey, how come these multinationals are becoming B Corps now? And and they find that challenging. But I, I think the you know, to to truly make a difference in the world, we have to take everyone with us. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And you can't, um, you know, you, you can't just say, well, I, I want to be a B Corp because I am. You have to do the assessment. You have to get to other yeah. points. And if you are one, it just shows that we're evolving and we're changing. And I, I'm excited yeah. by that. Giles just jumping in here again with a quick aside. No matter where you are in your journey to grow your brand for a healthier planet, there's one area of impact that all e-commerce brands share, and that's shipment packaging. It's imperative that the customer's order arrives in perfect condition. You already know that if your stuff arrives damaged, that's a bad user experience. It ends up in profit-sucking refunds or replacements, and the damaged items will likely end up in landfill. But how much thought have you given to the fact that your shipment packaging is actually usually a highly overlooked part of the overall customer experience? In many cases, it will be the very first physical interaction someone has with your brand. With sustainability, the war on waste and the single-use plastic problem being front of mind for almost all consumers now, the last thing you want is for that first impression of your brand to be dominated by frustration with how your products are packaged. That's why I'm so excited to be partnering with our friends at Heaps Good Packaging on the show. They provide a range of very cost-effective, eco-friendly, compostable shipment packaging from simple mailers through fillers, tapes, labels, and post-pack boxes. And with that all-important first impression in mind, they can also help you with custom-printed packaging as well to really elevate your brand experience. 
Head over to heapsgoodpackaging.com.au and use code PACKLIKEABOSS to get 10% off site-wide. Okay, back to today's discussion. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and we had a really interesting discussion the other day, you and I, about uh, what's right and wrong for the heart of, of B-Lab and B Corp, you know, with some of the new big brands that are coming in. And there was there was a couple of articles published by journalists not long ago saying, oh, you know, why is B Corp allowed, say, uh, Nestle or whoever it was to come in with their... Uh, uh, no, Nespresso, I'm sorry, Nespresso, uh, to come in with their coffee pod machines and all this, well, all this damage they've done to the environment. How is this right? But the reality is that if we if we only allow organizations that have grown from the ground up as sustainable as purpose-driven organizations to be part of b corp what about the rest of the 98 percent of businesses out there how do they become better and that's what we need right we need that encouragement we need that benchmark that everybody has to hit to get in and then the framework to help everybody get better otherwise we just sunk anyway yeah absolutely and so I, i think we have to we, we have to look at it through a collaborative and inclusive lens. And, and so therefore, um, and I, I know when we first started, we sort of, we were having philosophical discussions of who we chat, who we would chat to and who we wouldn't chat to. And my theory has always been, let's chat to everyone. Um, because mm. regardless of what you're doing today, you know, you might be the biggest renewable source in, in 10 years time. I guess the, so we just have to be careful that if you're going to talk to everyone, uh, make sure they don't use you to greenwash. Um, and, yeah. And, but in my, in my, through my eyes, I, I'm delighted that more corporations, whether they're big or small, are joining um, the B Corp community because um, it shows that we all have different ways of doing good. Um, and once they get on board, um, we all want to become better. Um, so, yeah. but we all have to, I, I think it's, it's, it, it's a fallacy to say, well, some companies are just great and, you know, they're carbon neutral and they have, you know, just no impact on the world. Everything we do has an impact. And yeah. Carbon neutrality means basically nothing, as we know. So, um, yeah, absolutely. yeah. And you sort of go, so, so it's just being, it's, and Yvonne Sherinard says it better than anyone. You know, it's about being responsible. Yeah. And, 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 and I, we should use that word instead of green. We should use that word instead of sustainable. Uh, it's just about, being aware of uh, what impact that you have and then being as responsible as you can to to minimise it and to make the world better. Yeah, and to that end, I think that's a brilliant segue because to make the world better, to make the planet healthier, whatever you, whatever phrasing you, you want to put, I think the, the key thing for me is is understanding that business and the economy is not a separate system to the ecology, right? It's it's It absolutely belongs within the ecology of our planet, which means that from a, you know if you take if you take a step back from that and go well that means that everything that i do in my business is part of this bigger system which is our beautiful yeah. planet you know the, the the things that i take from it and the things that i put out at the other end have got to live within this ecosystem we've got to be that that forces us organizationally to think more holistically about what we're taking what we're producing and how and how we're dealing with that and it goes back to your point a moment ago about product stewardship which leads us nicely i think onto this concept yes. of waste so john I think it was Will I Am of all people that said waste is not waste until it's wasted. Just I love the catchiness of that, right? Oh. I, I mean, if, you wouldn't necessarily expect it from someone that's a pop star, but anyway, I love it and I'm rolling with it. So, John, what is waste? Because you were saying, you know, it's it's really about reframing it and and the word and exchanging, it, I suppose, for the word resource, which is in essence what you're doing with Save Our Souls. But there's challenges with that, right? Oh. I mean, it, it you know we we live in such a linear economy we live in such a linear world where 
where the infrastructure, the the metrics, the um, the way that we do our shipping, the way that we process uh, materials, the way that we make and design products is designed for a, a make use, let's say throw away for the sake of argument uh, model. Yeah. What are your thoughts on on how businesses need to rethink that process so that what comes out at the back end, the product of the organization, they can think more holistically about taking back in and using in some new way later? What what are some of the things that you think we should be thinking about? I think we, we need to understand it's a global problem, but it's best addressed locally um, because you sort of go, I, I guess the, you know, the ultimate in a uh, in a circular economy sort of world is you, you keep making a shoe out of a shoe. And then you go, and, and that sounds terrific, you know, cradle to cradle and, and all that, and you go, yep, got it. Um, okay, so in Australia, we don't manufacture shoes, so the cost of, uh, of breaking it all down, et cetera, et cetera, and taking it back to the factories, is that, the, is that perfect? And you go, of course it's not perfect. It's still got... It's still having an impact. As we said, everything has an impact. And I guess it becomes a little bit subjective towards the end of the day. You go, actually, if we don't make shoes in Australia, is it okay to make floors out of shoes? I can make those floors for the next thousand years if I get them back. Is that a true circular model? And you go, probably not really. Is it the most responsible thing that I can do today? Yeah. And so I guess that's where looking, you know, the most circular thing about the circular economy is the conversation we have. Mm. There are people that have spent all their lives talking about it. Maybe that's a criticism. I don't know. I think it's important to talk and to and to uh, explore ideas and all. But ultimately, uh, we just have to be as responsible as we can today. Understand that in Australia, we can't. It's very very difficult to make a shoe out of a shoe. Um, but as soon as it becomes relevant. Well, then you, if you look at that through the responsibility lens, then you have to change your focus and say, my focus is I just want to, I, I want to be as responsible and as good as I can every day of my life. So if I learn that I can do something better, for God's sake, do it. But from a business mm. viewpoint, that, that's really complex because yeah. I, I, as, when I sit on a board and I see a strategic direction, it's sort of nice to have a bit of certainty in there and saying, okay, this is where we're heading. Awesome. The, the easy thing about waste at board level is that it's easily dismissed. And I guess the only thing that some board members will now say is we don't want this going to landfill. And mm. you go, yep, got it, good. So let's make sure it doesn't go to landfill. And you go, actually, no, none of our stuff goes to landfill anymore. Go, awesome. Um, so we feel good now about what we're doing. But when you dissect the resource and look at it, it's a lot more complex than that. And you can't, and you sort of go, if you've got, one solution fixes all, it's generally a compromise. Yeah. And is when you compromise, is that being responsible? And and again, unless it's black and white, it's subjective. But you sort of go, yeah. quite often the easiest solution is not the best one. Yeah. And well, correct. And and because because like you just said, it is complex and there's a different an, a, a more or less appropriate solution for one material or another. There's a different, more appropriate solution for taking the consideration of a global economy, but local distribution. Yep. You know, that that immediately makes it very difficult to do things like, right, let's send the shoes back to Nike who made it in Africa or wherever the, wherever the shoes were made, you know, like you yes. can't, you just can't do that economic and make that economically viable to keep, to keep those things going around a loop. Um, exactly. So it's a, a really challenging problem. And, and of course, with your business, Save Our Souls, you are focused, obviously, on recycling shoes. So uh, is it all footwear? 
or you know just in the context of you know complexity is it all footwear or is it just sports shoes like what can you actually do it's, so we could do all footwear we, we're sort of doing it in stages so when i went uh, to the sporting industry in 2018 we concentrated on sport and and to because that was the easiest way. I, I knew everyone in the sporting industry because I've been in it for a while, and mm. that was the uh, the easiest model to create a collaborative and inclusive model. So we got better results. So we went there, and then you know. But I've been recycling um, work boots with Totally Workwear since 2014 because I happened to bump into someone, and we sort of did that. And I recycled dress shoes, and I've been doing that with some people for for years and years. But I, I think just the now that we've got a model that is truly collaborative, we're now working with work boots um, and getting all of those people together, which was more challenging for me because I didn't know anyone in that industry. But I had a model mm. that worked, and I could yeah. say, "Hey, look, actually, Nike, Adidas, and Puma, and all those dudes are working together." Um, so I think it's very hard to argue that collaboration of a resource when you've finished with it is a far better outcome than trying to do it as a brand. Um, mm. And so, you know, in the vision in my head, I guess, is that, you know, in three or four or five years' times, so we'll have bins in, in lots of different stores. Um, uh, but in sports stores, I just recycle sports shoes. Um, and if you throw a work boot in there, mate, we don't. We don't kick you out of the store and say you can't do that. You know what I mean? But I think, again, looking at it through a triple bottom line, being people, profit and planet, it makes sense if you've got old sports shoes that you take them back to your sports store because um, you know, maybe you might buy something when you're there. Yeah. There's no – we don't discount uh, our new product because we recycle shoes. We do it because, as an industry, it's the right thing to do. Um, but I'm cognizant that – you're better off to go to a sports store to do it than than a than a school, because the logistics of picking up at a school are far worse for the environment than picking up at a sports store. Because we already yeah. drop shoes off at a sports store. Do you know what I mean? So the truck dropping off can pick up at the same time, and I can yeah. argue that there's it's carbon neutral because it was going yeah. back to the depot anyhow. And so so okay so you know because because of the nature of what your your business does, it makes this kind of flooring out of the shoe material. I mean, just quickly tell us a little bit about what the process looks like between receiving some ratty old pair of trainers and turning that into something that can be used as, as, as flooring. What what does that roughly look like? So we, we pick it up from the sports store. It then comes back. It might get stored uh, for a little while, but then um, I use third parties to recycle it. So we haven't gone to the capital expense of, of providing our own um, uh, factory. And that's, only because it doesn't make any sense. There's already machines out there that will do it. It's just we've just yep. got to work with them uh, to to grab their machinery every now and then to pop our shoes in. So we basically we put it into a shoe. It, it, it um, shreds and granulates. We separate depending on what we do. We if we're making a shock pad, um, up to ninety five percent of the shoe will be retained um, because the the the, uh, the pieces are quite a bit bigger. Um, and we're looking at making a shock pad that goes underneath uh, synthetic grass and, and, and that, which we currently import. Um, so we're sort of, that's a, a work in progress, but it's looking pretty promising. And I think we'll commercialize that probably in the next sort of three to six months, which is exciting. Fantastic. That's yeah, fun. great. And it, if I don't do that, I granulate it down to a crumb. We break it down to that and we mix it with Australian car tires and then okay. we make a bund out of it and we cut it. Um, into six mil, and that's what we use at the, the you know JD Sports and Rebel, Nike, Converse, right. that sort of stuff. 
How is it bonded together? Uh, so with, with a binder. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's the, you know, and I've made mats out of 100% shoes and, mate, they've got no fall rating on them. If you fall on them, you're going to split your head open. They're just really binder heavy. So I think that's, you know, one of the good lessons and is that you, just because it's recycled, you got to make sure it works. you got to make sure it's good. There's no point making stuff that's recycled that no one wants. You might as well yeah. put it in the landfill. And, and that's one of the challenges, I guess, um, as you get more and more crumb, you've got to find more and more uses for it um, yeah. because there's you know, Nike and all, all the retail flooring that the, our retailers do. I'm, I've got a bigger supply of crumb than what they, they're not going to replace their floors just because I want them to. They'll only do mm. it. I only want them to do it when they need it. So that's why we're looking at other opportunities to use the crumb as sub lays in playgrounds or in running tracks, um, in synthetic grass. Um, so it's slightly daunting because you're never quite sure what's going to happen and you have an enormous amount of great conversations of which very few come off. But when they yeah. do, it's awesome. Because I think you mentioned last time we... We caught up. You you were processing something like was it a million shoes a year or something like that. Since um, Asga um, has become involved, we've, we're just about at a million. Um, now, yeah. Since two thousand eighteen, uh, going back to two thousand eight, um, I've, I've never added, added up, but it's it's probably quite a bit more than a million. Quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so so, but that's obviously quite a lot of shoes, even though it's a small drop in the ocean with how many shoes there are going around. And I'm assuming the rest of them essentially are going into landfill, apart from a few that go yep. around and around, but ultimately they're going to end up in landfill if they don't get processed by you. And so that's a lot of material and you must be like, you know, about, you know, you must be pulling your hair out going, Christ, I've got to, I've got to keep making sure that there's a downstream uh, use for all this sort of stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, does it have thermal properties? Can you use it in insulation and that sort of stuff, or is it really just shock absorbency? No, I, I, I was having a conversation with a, a company in Dandenong yesterday, um, specifically looking at thermal pads yeah. um, and, and what that looks like. Um, and it might not just be um, so when we separate the shoes to crumb, we lose quite a bit of the fiber. Mm. So usually that's the upper of the shoe, um, which is which is you know predominantly probably polyester or recycled polyester um and and i haven't i'm trying to find a use for that at the moment as i say if i make the crumbs bigger and i do it in a shock pad i don't lose a lot of that fiber but in the mats i do lose it um so again being as responsible as i can you go well i'm not going to wait until i have a hundred percent of the shoe being recycled i'm still recycling you know 60 70 percent mm. but am i worried about that 30 going to landfill you go absolutely i am but I don't need to find a solution for it because I've already found a solution for 95% if I do this, 60 to 70% if I do this, but ultimately I want 100% success in everything. And But but you've got to work towards it and you've got to, um, and sometimes in business you go, actually find a solution for everything, then we'll play. Yeah. You go, and the only way I've learned is by doing, you know, I know a lot more now about uh, this space because I've been doing it for, you know, a long time yeah than than thinking about the best solution because i'm not sure there is one i think that's exactly right i mean no matter which element of the business doing things sustainably model you look at whether it's processing whether it's upstream whether it's downstream whether it's the marketing whether it's the communications whether it's whatever nothing is really clear nothing's perfect and the, the 
the only perfect thing you can do is just get going, get started, and then make it better. That's it. It's just on the, if you don't do anything, nothing changes. If you do something, you yeah. have the opportunity to become better. And you go, and why wouldn't you? So I sort of, you know, for anyone yeah. listening, you sort of go empower yourself to make a difference, um, and make sure you do. And if you do, um, great. Yeah. And if you, you know, it's a, and and collaborate. It's not about you know making the world a better place is is not anyone's idea. It's just but. It's every, it should be everyone's idea, and we all have an obligation to help each other to do it. I could literally talk about this all day with you, John. I feel like I feel like uh, we could talk for hours and hours, and and kind of get very distracted. But with the mindset of collaboration, with the mindset of just getting started, how do brands work with you? Where where do they go, and what does that process start to look like if they want to if they want to use your service? The brands are pretty good at just reaching out. You know, I've got a saveoursouls.co. It is co. Uh, website and and people just reach out to me every day and usually surprised I ring them back normally the same day and say g'day Giles what's going on buddy how can I help sort of thing um, I'm, I'm really happy just to have a chat so there you have it everybody saveoursouls.co and John Elliott he, he doesn't mind the yarn does John uh, so get it pick up the phone and have a chat and uh, allow yourself half an hour to have a quick conversation because because uh, John is an absolute font of knowledge about this stuff what a fascinating conversation this has been I literally I could I don't want to put down the phone uh, to be honest because I want to keep chatting with you but I know I have to and you've got to go as well so thank you so much uh, John for joining us today it's been absolute joy talking with you and likewise buddy and thanks for the opportunity I appreciate the chat back to Giles again for my top takeouts and my first takeout comes all the way back to the topic of rethinking waste and how reframing waste to that of an organizational resource is actually the first step that simple switch of terminology changes the conversation from how do we get rid of waste or how do our customers dispose of it to how can we use the resource and how can we reclaim that resource from our customers when they're finished with it while not all the economic answers are in place, having those conversations now will lead us down a better pathway as brands in the future. And talking of economics, John's point about waste being a global problem with a local solution is a really salient one. There isn't always a 100% circular solution, especially if your product is being manufactured overseas. The economics of shipping back used items both financially and in carbon footprint probably makes that non-viable. While striving for a completely closed-loop solution might seem like nirvana, there might be more practical ways to manage your resources more responsibly right now. And I also thought it was interesting hearing from John about his take on consumer expectations. He made the point that millennials are driving the expectation in brands doing better because they're actively seeking vehicles to make the world a better place themselves. And who they buy from is an increasingly big part of that. Studies have shown that 80% plus of millennials expect businesses to help them do better themselves. And that includes not just what the things they buy are made of, but also what they should do with the products when they don't want them anymore. So that brings us to the end of this little mini-series. I actually have more shows on this topic lined up for you later in the year, but for now we're going to turn back to more business-as-usual episodes and with some more great brands who are actively working to change the world. For now, I want to say thanks again to John for sharing his wisdom so generously, and thanks again to my sponsors, Heaps Good Packaging, who've been helping me make this podcast more sustainable for the past three months. I'll be back again next week with more stories from the world of sustainable e-commerce. So until then, keep building your brand for a healthier planet. <laughs>